Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Here on the podcast, we like to talk about video recordings of theatrical productions, usually of slightly illicit nature. And so, for this bonus episode, we're going to be reviewing a show that you can purchase tickets to from the comfort of your own home. And this week, we are talking about none other than the brand new motion picture adaptation of Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom. This movie is available uh, for streaming on Netflix starting today. So, if you got yourself a Netflix subscription in a couple hours, then, as they say, no day but today. And if you didn't get a chance to catch the production, that's alright too. We'll tell you everything you need to know in this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy this bonus episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From questionable origins... Of various productions. It's a very scary movie, because he sits there trying to write a song. He's an aspiring musical theater writer, and he doesn't have anything. And he's about to turn 30, and there's nothing there. And you think about in college, where you'd go to the practice room and just write a song in an hour, and the visions of Stephen Sondheim are breathing down your neck, and everything used to be easier, and what once was there, what could be discovered as talent, is vaporizing into thin air, and you thought you were going to be a young talent, and there's House of Blue Leaves where he says, I'm too old to be a new talent, and he ends up killing somebody, and you think, well, that's also ridiculous, but then there are moments where that seems reasonable, because you've been there with him, and it's... This was a scary movie. So you messaged me beforehand saying, I have a bit for this episode. Just go along with it. Are you, are you 100% certain that this is a bit? Uh, oh, oh, I didn't realize I was on a call. Hi. Uh, <laughs> when did we start this? Dan, what are we doing today? Oh, we're discussing Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a movie that's going to be put on Netflix. And this was a fantasy horror movie. It's a fantasy because I can't relate in any way, Don't start this again. Don't start this again. Jesus, fuck. The audience has had enough from the top of it. Christ. (laughs) What? Start what again? Hi. Start the episode already. God. So we watched Tick, Tick, Boom, and this was completely unrelatable. I mean, I, I don't know where they came up with this plot. Yeah, I, as we could tell from that... I couldn't relate to it. 30-minute-long intro that you just dished out. I couldn't relate to it. I don't know about you, but... I, I... Uh, this is uh, part of a series on our podcast uh, where we are attempting to cover um, the breadth of contemporary movie musicals that are coming out and sort of hold them uh, up against each other. Um... 
there's a couple we haven't uh, gotten to. Uh, we haven't watched uh, Everybody's Talking About Jamie. We haven't talked about In the Heights yet. Um, but we have covered, um, we had in, our, in one of our previous episodes, we covered Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> uh, and we are absolutely, <laughs> did we ever? Um, and uh, we are planning to talk about the upcoming West Side Story uh, film. Yeah, that's pretty much what the musical sounds like. Um, and uh, what else is there? What other movie musicals are coming up? Wicked, eventually, we're going to talk about. What else is there? Uh, we might be dead by then. <laughs> um, what other movie musicals? The ones I'm writing, because I write musicals. I'm the future of musicals. God, the guy theater. watches Tick, Tick, Boom once, immediately he starts kinning Jonathan Larson. Holy shit. Where do you start here? Well, uh, where we normally do with sort of our familiarities. Um, what's your association with Tick, Tick, Boom? How have you been associated with it? What's your association with Larson? Oh, what a big question. So, yeah, honestly, I got the Rent Broadway cast album from the library, and I didn't know if my parents were going to let me um, check it out because I was so young, <laughs> young. Um, so I reserved it online along with a couple <laughs> other books. So we went through the drive-through and just got the books, and I took it home and. I listened to it that way. I don't think they even realized I had it. And, yeah, that was terrific. And then the tour, this was one of the non-equity tours. The tour was coming to Ohio, and I really wanted to see it. Really wanted to see it. Begged my parents to let me go see mm -hmm. it. And they said, I don't think you're old enough. That year, I was, I think, in fifth grade. And we had to write a persuasive essay about something in our lives, and, you know, to learn how to write persuasively. And I wrote an essay about I wanted to go see Rent. And <laughs> my parents had a parent-teacher conference, <laughs> and the teacher there, <laughs> an inspiration to me in my life, one of the meanest bitches ever. So my parents had the parent-teacher conference, and <laughs> the teacher said, so let old fag go see Rent. <laughs> she didn't say little fag but she literally told my parents well, go let him see rent jesus <laughs> oh my god the energy there go let the little fag see rent <laughs> uh and, and then the movie Holy came god. out and so yeah and then i did see rent i saw the uh tour after it had closed on Broadway and Anthony Rapp and Adam Pascal mm. were back in the show as always um, which that was terrific now Tick Tick Boom I had seen the off-Broadway bootleg with Raul Esparza uh, mm -hmm. I th that was like one of the first bootlegs I ever watched I was very familiar with the cast oh, album wow. I... Jonathan Larson has meant a lot to me in my life, and we'll talk about Rent one of these days. I'm not as much of a fan of it now um, as I was hmm. when I was a kid, but yeah, he was a talent. Yeah, that's for certain. Um, so what did you I, know um, about Tick, Tick, Boom, yeah. Jonathan Larson, and Rent? Well, I, um, I, I only watched Rent for the first time uh, this year at the beginning of the year. 
when I watched it for uh, a friend's birthday party and got absolutely sauced. Just like totally. I had a I had a drinking game where I decided I was going to take a shot every time the word rent was said in the show. Oh, you're on the ground I abandoned already. that idea like three <laughs> minutes in. Um, still ended up having a dope-ass night. Um, that started, you know, my late, late, late period of the rent obsession that I think every theater nerd is meant to have, um, where all I did was listen to that cast recording and find those bootleg clips and obsess over Anthony Rapp's strange, strange movements. What, Mel B? Mel B or Mel C is Mimi. (laughs) Hello, Tis Oy vey. Oy vey. Um, yeah, but I, I uh, totally threw myself into a wall. that rent period and started sort of casually exploring the work of Jonathan Larson. I actually hadn't heard any of the songs from Tick, Tick, Boom except for Therapy, uh, which I did for an assignment what? in my first year of university. Huh. Yeah. You had um, never heard someone sing Come to Your Senses at an audition? No. No, absolutely not. What the fuck is wrong with you Canadians? I actually wanted to watch that OBC uh, off-Broadway class, I should say, uh, bootleg before watching the movie and didn't get the chance to. But throwing myself into this movie blind to the overall story of Tick, Tick, Boom, I think, honestly, was a decision that I don't totally regret. Because I, I very much... I'm glad to have had this movie as like an introduction to the narrative. At the at the top of this, I kind of want to talk about the conception of Tick Tick Boom as a show, right? Because this wasn't directly Larson's creation. Like this was like the show that was that premiered off Broadway in 2001 was not 100% Jonathan's work. No, they brought in David Lindsay a bear to mm-hmm. um, create a workable show. It, it was based on a concert that Jonathan Larson had given, or not a concert, but just a performance um, art yeah, piece. I, the, the actual, uh, the, the uh, subtitle was a rock monologue, uh, and the piece was originally called 3090, uh, and then later Boho Days, which is uh, the framing narrative of the uh, movie, actually. Mm-hmm. They brought in David Lindsay Bear to basically create characters and create a dramatic piece that was workable because it was just one person and they wanted another Jonathan Larson musical he didn't have many options uh, because of his untimely demise and so they did create the show it was very successful it played at the Jane Street Ballroom now the Jane Street is a very old hotel in New York City. The ballroom is where they brought the survivors of the Titanic when the Titanic, when uh, the survivors of the Titanic, when the Carpathia came into dock. To relate this back to yesterday, last week's discussion, it, it literally played where the survivors were brought um, while they got these people money and sent them on their way and had ask questions for congressional inquiries. I love that we've brought up the Jane Street Theater uh, two weeks in a row. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Um, and tune in next week when we, of course, talk about uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
with Ali Sheedy. You proud of me for that one? <laughs> <laughs> you proud of me for that one? Yeah, it's good. So uh, where were we? So Tick, Tick, Boom, yeah. It, it was made into a successful show. I think a number of colleges have done it at this point. It's a pretty easy show to put on. And so it does get licensed. It is licensable. And it gave us more Jonathan mm-hmm. Larson material. Yeah. This is really, I guess, one of two shows that are, like, available to be performed. Or, I guess, like, well, to be produced, right? It's very interesting. There are two Jonathan Larson shows that are in any form completed... But and one of them's not really a Jonathan Larson show, completely. They're both unfinished works. Yeah, I well, we will... you know, the the the, the unfinishedness of Rent is that uh, we're seeing it before previews. That's really the 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 unfinished right. aspect of it. Right, Rent. I we'll get into this when we do cover Rent, which I hope is soon. Um, so do I. So Rent is unfinished he died the night of the dress rehearsal and yes. i shows get rewritten during previews and he had rewritten a lot of rent in the time that he was alive all signs point to he would have done a lot more rewriting had he lived on so there is yeah something unfinished or unfinished feeling that is without question rent. yes and yeah Tick, Tick, Boom is really... They are his songs, but... It's not the, necessarily... The general plot his... is the same, but all the dramatic situations are invented, more or less, by David Lindsay Abair. And he's filling in a lot of blanks. And Stephen Levinson, I think, even more so uh, in this, because uh, oh. I guess I'll sort of segue to talking a little bit about the movie, but this sort of takes the a um, semi-biographical approach to it, right? Like, it strays further from this sort of narrative of this character experiencing these things and sort of looks at Jonathan Larson at this period of his life. And, of course, the movie starts with letting you know that there are things that are invented and embellished um, but it does paint itself as, you know, a look at Jonathan Larson. The composer. Mm-hmm. The, I was surprised how little the movie had in common with the stage show. Yeah? Uh, I mean, it's still the same general structure. Same synopsis, maybe? It's, yeah, same overall synopsis, but you get in there, and it's a three-character off-Broadway show. There were a lot of characters in that movie, and... Mm. The moments landed differently. The moments felt different. I also... Mm -hmm. I might be misremembering. I haven't seen Tick, Tick, Boom in probably a decade. Uh, I don't remember the timeline being so compact of this is the week of the workshop. Which Mm, dramatically, I think, strengthened the piece. Yeah, no, it was certainly very strong. Um encapsulating it within this time frame especially I think heightens this sort of like you know ticking time bomb that the the musical's namesake is about right mm-hmm. um, 
everything here feels like a rush to a deadline. That deadline can be the workshop, or that deadline can be Susan moving out to the Hamptons, or it can be Jonathan Larson turning 30. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that condensing is actually a very, very smart choice. I guess overall, let's, let's, let's catapult ourselves right into it. Did you like the film adaptation of Tick, Tick, Boom? It pains me to say this, considering some of the people involved. I thought it was pretty excellent. Okay, let's unpack that. I agree with you. I thought it was excellent. Let's unpack that. What do you mean by that? There's a certain person. Are you are you anti Andrew Garfield? No, no. I saw I saw Garfield in Angels in America on Broadway, and Garfield you saw was Garfield in Angels in America. <laughs> What a what a half-assed performance that must have been. It wasn't a Monday. He gave it his all. He looked. He looked at. I was gonna say he looked at the lesions on his arm. He's like, oh, Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> Don't cut that. But that's awful. <laughs> oh. Uh. So yeah, I saw Garfield. And Angels in America. That's not who I'm referring to. There's a certain person. Um, certainly, there? Who certainly likes to cast himself in things, regardless of whether he can sing or not. And, yeah, he glad hands more than the slimiest of all politicians. And he's heard enough positives to last him several lifetimes like if there is reincarnation he's received enough praise to really last his next seven lives uh so it really does hate me to say this but he did an excellent job and it's an excellent movie we know who i'm talking about you have complicated feelings about him too you listener listener has complicated feelings about him I really think he writes rather outstanding work. On the surface level of his works, I think he is an, a technical expert at what he does. And of course there is this sort of messiah complex thing that I think the general public has, has adopted to certain individuals' existence. But frankly, the fact of the matter is he turns out good works. And Tick, Tick, Boom. Sometimes. I've had an issue with some of the things he's done. Yeah, yeah, so have I. I'm talking mainly on this surface level, technical, output kind of thing. Where I think if he just works on a project, you there will be a high level of technical skill applied. Um, anyway, I'm going to jump to someone completely random now. Uh, this is a really surprisingly great directorial debut on the part of Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is truly an impressive jump out the gate. I, by no stretch, would look at Tick, Tick, Boom and say this is a Criterion Collection movie and deserves to be up in the annals of cinema history. There's a lot that's... The annals, maybe? Uh, well, probably. <laughs> uh, probably. Um, this movie is corny but extremely endearingly so. And every single part of this movie makes you love it, I think. You know, 
There's nothing. There's nothing to roll your eyes at. There's nothing to groan here. But God, this was really, truly impressive, and comes back down to the central argument of let musical theater people make musical theater movies. This is the biggest fucking advertisement for that argument I have ever seen. Honestly, agree. Yeah. I, I, listen, listen. Most recent musical Best Picture winner, Chicago. Great movie. Everyone loves. Yada yada yada. Tell me at what point in Chicago did they put Stephen Schwartz, Tom Kitt, and Dave Malloy in the same room as someone playing Stephen Sondheim? Tell me what part, what part of Chicago had that happen? Chicago had Cheetah. This had Cheetah. I think, yeah, I think the key maybe to a good <laughs> the key to a good movie musical is give a cameo to Cheetah Rivera. Cheetah this Rivera, this is not a good sign for West Side Story. <laughs> oh my God! Hey, hey, hey! Listen, Rita Moreno won the Oscar for Cheetah's role. Cheetah is maybe Cheetah this and not transferable. Rita. Rita is Rita and not Cheetah. <laughs> That's a good one. Where'd you get that from? Forbidden Broadway. <laughs> yeah, I figured. <laughs> um, Cheetah, by the way, making her cameo in what I truly think is the most gloriously green screenshot I've ever seen in my life. I have watched episodes of 30 Rock where Tracy Jordan was across the country shooting shit. And still, this was the most green screen thing I'd ever seen. And gloriously so. Like, in the most brilliant, spectacular way. They put a martini in they her d- hand. <laughs> they, and they said, baby, be Cheetah. They need to release boy, the raw footage. Cheetah. They need to release the raw footage of her martini in hand singing Ladies Who Lunch. Which I'm sure they must have gotten her to do on that set. Otherwise, they are not real musical theater people. Oh, is that a challenge? Uh, yes, yes. Challenge. I am. I am personally calling on the artistic team of tick tick boom the 2021 motion picture to release the footage the people deserve this do you know what i want to start talking about no steven levinson who we much maligned who we yeah. really ripped a new asshole i've <laughs> i've been talking every single time i've talked to people about this movie i've gone i don't understand how you make dear evan hansen and tick tick boom back to fucking back how do you create these two things like simultaneously what happened and also if i forget and fossey verdon we're back to back i mean he has about a 50 percent success rate but when it's a success boy does he knock oh the 50 percent is on the extremes you're either in the bottom 25 percent or in the top 25 percent Okay, now we're doing too many numbers and you've lost me. Whatever. I, I don't I, do math. I did one number. One number. 25. Let, let's talk about his, his, his writing here. Um, what are we seeing in Tick, Tick, Boom that was so not there in Evan Hansen? Uh, there's a naturalness. Actually, yeah, sure. We'll get into this. Stephen Levinson at his worst feels like a reaction, and Stephen Levinson at his best feels like breathing. Very striking. It's Elaborate. a reaction to breathing versus breathing. And how do you figure breathing? Um... Not the. I'm not talking about realism as in the whole 
movement of realism in American drama that was seen in the 40s. I'm talking about realism, just we're having a conversation. He's able to write like we're having an actual conversation. He's able to create these characters where everything that they say um, feels second nature to them. Nothing seems really out of place. And the writing feels grounded. You buy it. Yeah, absolutely. There were so many fantastic, fantastic moments here that I thought stood out so brilliantly, so dramatically. There was some really witty satire here, particularly in the um, writer's workshop scene where you have uh, Sondheim and Bloom. And Bloom hits Larson with an attack and Sondheim goes, I, I actually kind of like that. And Bloom was like, yes, that's what I'm saying. I, I really... I yes, absolutely, oh, I agree. <laughs> Just everything, Sonheim. I agree with that. I said the complete opposite, but I agree with that. That's really what I meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and how perfect to get Richard Kind to do that. Yeah, like, fuck, seriously. absolutely. That's <laughs> this movie. That's where you deploy should Richard win an kind. award for best Richard Kind placement in a movie in the the twenty first century. <laughs> <laughs> um, so oh, you have God. moments like that brilliant moments like that and then you have stuff like the therapy scene where John and Susan are having this really fucking fantastic falling well, that out that was the big swing here that was really the you want to talk about the biggest difference they decided that they were going to take Vanessa Hudgens and Joshua Henry and you put them in the world of the dramatic presentation of 3090 Jonathan Larson's what you call it a rock monologue rock um, monologue yeah you put them in that world which by the way these songs by the way and the, um, you sorry real quick might be a fun fact um the character that Joshua Henry played was basically stepping in for uh Roger Bart who performed backing vocals for the original production of uh Larson's rock monologue Wow. Yeah, Larson and Bart were actually um, rather close friends throughout his life. But the biggest swing is we have these two people in the world of 3090, the presentation rock monologue, and we're going to take most of the songs out of the actual characters. So what they have done is they've made most of the music diegetic. Yeah, and... I don't mean to make like such a harsh comparison, but did that scene also feel like cabaret-esque to you? Well, I think you're going to cabaret because cabaret was another uh, movie musical that decided all of the music was going to be diegetic. But I mean, like, and you're going to use you're going to use what is happening dramatically to um, subvert the song. I mean, like, like specifically this notion of, like, bouncing back and forth between this, you know, very intense dramatic moment and this, you know, super put-on, shticky, vaudeville-esque performance where, you know, you get these close-ups on Vanessa Hudgens and Andrew Garfield and they're smiling so hard and you can see them tearing up. Like, they are complete, it is a complete, like fabrication of a thing while you can see them dying inside you know that was that that's something i associate with cabaret and that sequence particularly i thought was really fucking well done for that 
It was a well-done sequence. I didn't get the cabaret reference beyond something superficial, personally. But but generally, just the scene itself, going back to Stephen Levinson, this fantastic falling out they have, where they're having this bicker of, like, art versus life, and they come so close to connecting, and all of a sudden, oh my god, he's tapping on her shoulder, writing a fucking song in his head in the middle of this, and you're you're just sitting there like, oh, mm-hmm. god damn, he's just, he's, he's George Seurat. That's a great cinematic moment because that's not something that would work on stage. Absolutely not. You couldn't register a movement that small. I mean, you could have it, but the reaction would have to be much bigger. That's knowing that um, the camera is there. The camera's going to move in and focus and get to the heart of the scene. And I do have to say, I think, shockingly, Tick, Tick, Boom was perfectly set up for a movie adaptation because it is something that has never been easily defined in form it's been well was it a concert and then we put characters in the piece so really they took the bones and they felt that they were free to completely remake the plot the story uh, the pieces, reassemble them and turn it into a movie and completely reimagine the piece in cinematic format. And you're not going to have people sitting around, well, I miss this from the show, well, I miss this from the show. Because the stage show originally defied form to begin with. You hear they're going to make a movie out of Tick, Tick, Boom, and you think, that'll never work, what is that? And then you see, and they have so thoroughly reinvented it that you go oh it could only ever work this way and that's really the markings of a great adaptation regardless of if it's a musical if it's a musical movie if it's a tv show if it's a miniseries it's a great adaptation absolutely it it stands so well on its own and like fuck the layers this works on this works as a movie musical outright. This works as a great adaptation of Tick, Tick, Boom. This works as a telling of Jonathan Larson's life. This works as generally a movie for theater lovers. This works as a film for Stephen Schwartz diehards who who really just want to see him up on the big screen. <laughs> see, I gotta say, I, I watched this movie as... Um, a virtual uh, early screening, and Dan had the chance to see it uh, in a movie theater, which I'm hoping to see it uh, in tomorrow, actually. Uh, because, yes, I do want to rewatch this movie. Um, you gotta tell me. Wh- I, 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 for me, it felt so weird seeing those composers taking up, like, so much of my screens, framed so cinematically. Seeing, like, Jason Robert Brown, like, framed in a shot like that. How did that feel in, the, in a big screen, and how did the audience take to that? Let's talk about the audience interaction because if we're doing that, oh please, yeah, delve in your experience. The totality of the audience interaction. Um, I will say, (laughs) this is gonna come up later, but I was in the very last row of the movie theater. I decided to, yeah, I I was assigned a seat that didn't exist for some reason, and so then I decided I'll just sit in the back row. I don't think anyone's gonna come, and sure enough, no one else came. I was in the row by myself. The next person was two rows ahead of me. Um, the composers showed up, and there was a bit of a gasp. And then you got to the Sunday song, and every person Mm. got 
a uh, recognizing laugh. Like, okay, BB New Earth's on screen. <laughs> and it's more the audience signifying to other audience members. I know who that <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Look, I-, I laugh too. It's That's the psychology behind it. It's not yeah. a proud point of me. But ha ha ha, Joel Grey, um, ha, Joel Grey, Joel Grey, Cabaret, Joel Grey, ha ha, Joel Grey. <laughs> yeah. Um,. Laura Benanti isn't in the Sunday number. She got a massive laugh when she appeared for the first time. Just in her appearance? I mean, she was she had an yeah. extremely funny scene, but just her. So, yeah, there was a bit of a laugh recognition for every person. And then Bernadette Peters showed up. Oh, my God. And when Bernadette Peters showed up, the entire audience started oh applauding. Oh my god, Dan. Oh my god, Dan. Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters as Dot. Holy shit. As, as Holy Dot. Holy shit. Everyone started applauding. And the number continued a little bit. And um And then you then got they went to you, the bums. Uh-huh. And the bums being Anthony Rapp, Adam Pascal, and Daphne Rubin Vega. And N- then uh, again, n- it wasn't Anthony Rapp, that was uh Wilson Germain. I thought it was Anthony Rapp. No no no. Well anyway, they were on screen for two seconds. I saw Daphne Rubin Vega. I like Daphne Rubin Vega. I know you hate her, but I love her. Um they Shut got the applause. fuck up. I'm fighting for the Vega songs as well. They got as much applause as Bernadette Peters. The number ended, and the entire number then got a massive round of applause. I'm not surprised. I wish that this had had a more widespread release, because fuck, I want to be in an audience of theater fans experiencing that number. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it was laugh, laugh, laugh. Bernadette Peters. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The people from Rent. (gasps) And then the final. (laughs) Um, It was... Something. And the other moment that was deeply, deeply a musical theater audience response, the mm. voicemail comes on. Aha. Uh-huh. You know what voicemail I'm talking about. Apparently a voicemail, voicemail that was used in the show as well. Yeah, it was used in the show, and it was an actual voicemail that he had saved from when Stephen Sondheim called him after the Superbia workshop. Was it? I thought it was, um, I thought, like... Uh, they actually went to Sondheim and got him to record it for Tick, Tick, Boom uh, off-Broadway. Uh, that's what I read somewhere. Oh, but, but was but, the actual thing. But I do believe like Sondheim because... did leave a voicemail, but I think that recording was specific to the production, possibly. Well, no, because in my mind, I'm thinking about my grandparents' answering machine, and that was a literal cassette tape that would eventually keep playing, and it would you would start recording over the cassette tape. If I am Jonathan Larson and Stephen Sondheim leaves me yeah. a voicemail, I'm actually happy that I didn't respond to the phone because I'm taking that cassette tape and I'm like getting it bronzed or something. <gasps> yeah. No. You know? Absolutely. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if it was the actual voicemail, but the Stephen Sondheim voicemail came on, and about he starts talking, and he said, I was really impressed. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you hear... <laughs> <laughs> like, 
everyone in the audience started crying because here was Steven Sondheim. Again, this was a completely unrelatable movie, but here's a bunch of musical theater fans, and it's Steven Sondheim telling someone in a voicemail that they did a good job and he appreciated the work, and everyone in the audience started crying. Listen, I'm not understating this when I'm saying the audience is hearing the voice of God. In that moment, Uh they are hearing the voice of God speaking to Jonathan Larson, the character and man they all already love. That is a act. That is straight up a holy moment. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a great moment. And it was also, I think, of uh, it was fantastic to get to hear uh, Sondheim's voice after the um remarkable physical impression and frankly little subpar vocal impression that we saw earlier on in the movie oh from bradley whitford yeah i thought it like if you were to watch i will i'll say like if you were to watch it with the sound off fucking uncanny valley like it is like straight up uncomfortable how much you're like i that's 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 steven sondheim you know that's steven sondheim but the 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 voice was a bit of a letdown though and of course you know i mean you're not gonna there are there are kids that have done Stephen Sondheim impressions in Forbidden Broadway that are pretty spot on. He didn't have the voice. Yeah, it, it, and, and that, I don't know well, even I'm like Steven just like hearing his voice. I don't think that's something that he necessarily could have gotten so well. But you know, just generally, um, it was fucking great to see, even though the voice wasn't totally there. And hearing the real Sondheim voice afterward felt like like a kind of glorious retcon. You know what I mean? Uh, well and the movie did almost always blur the lines of what is reality what actually happened of course and what did they create because certain parts of the movie were shot as if it was that footage that you've seen clips of from the presentation of 3090 and I honestly, I'm surprised it wasn't this, but they brought out that birthday cake for him. And they close up on the cake, and I thought they were going to cut a, when they cut back to Jonathan, I thought it was going to be actual footage of Jonathan Larson, and that's the image they would have left you with. But no, they stay with Garfield. Mm. I am glad that we got some Larson footage in the credits. Yeah, well, and then they put it in the credits, which all of the footage in the credits were what you just watched, so you realize, yeah, they took a lot of care recreating the bits of video that do exist. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been talking for about an hour here, and you know what we haven't talked about at all? Mm. What's that? We haven't talked about any of the music that's in this show slash movie oh oh, was there music in this movie there was music i don't know if you noticed but uh jonathan larson was a uh song stylist was he (laughs) strange strange decision to to have this movie uh focus so specifically on his culinary work but interesting (laughs) well the anicha de pepe that he put in that soup that was a genius move. Very MTV generation. Because the MTV generation sit around and say, Anicha de Pepe, Anicha de Pepe, Anicha de Pepe. The catchphrase of the century. Um, Jonathan Larson's songs. 
I He's writing one great song before he Um Listen, I go absolutely fucking ape shit over like grimy grunge rock in musical theater. And that is Jonathan Larson. This was grimy grunge rock. Well, as grimy grunge rock as like musical theater gets, you know? Okay. Like just sense. listening to that beginning of No More. I was listening to No More uh, uh, on yeah, the cast recording no, recently. And I just heard those opening 10 seconds. And I just thought to myself, like, how fucking audacious that you're just going to put that in a piece of musical theater. How fucking insane are you? Not insane, but probably high. I oh, mean, well, sure. The famous story after that after that Sondheim voicemail came through, he went over to Sondheim's house and uh, they both lit up. Is that true? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. There was just so much of Jonathan Larson's music that feels like it should have had no place on the musical theater stage, but works so fucking brilliantly. It's it's that, like, you know, it's the integration of this contemporary, quote-unquote, at least within the 90s, outsider music and pushing that into the Broadway mainstream, you know? Um, and not to go like, oh, Jonathan Larson revolutionized music as we know it in musical theater, but he did unapologetically throw the music of that time and the music of the people of that time into his works in an extremely effective manner. You know, I don't know how I came to... I know how I came to this conclusion because he sells off all of his records, yet he keeps God's fill. And... (laughs) And I'm thinking... Stephen Schwartz has always been good at, like using his generation's pop music and using that in a musical theater sense. And Jonathan Larson, it's kind of the same thing. He uses his generation's pop and rock tunes and makes the musical theater accessible. Mm -hmm. So maybe he would have had a kind of Stephen Schwartz career. Who knows? I wouldn't have been very surprised, no. Mm. Um, Yeah, I, I, I really am brilliantly delighted with the music in this and um i like that it i think more than rent exhibits jonathan's true um adeptness in the musical palette you know Mm -hmm. um because rent of course being written for the subject it's written for does feature a lot more of this you know mid-90s sort of trashy-ish street music you know Whereas here, you have a quite a bit more disparity between some of these numbers, you know? Um, I'm thinking particularly about, you know, the Sondheim spoof in Sunday and about the, the shtick number in uh, Therapy and of this utter heartfelt ballad in Why, you know? All of these divorced from that central palette and extremely effective of their own independent merits mm-hmm. you know what struck me this time i'm saying you know for a lot today for some reason but you know what it, struck... it's a good lead up it's a it's an old reliable mm-hmm. you, you know what struck me watching the movie what if i said yes 
What? What what struck you? What, what struck, you? struck me is he's a great <laughs> melodist. He is a great melodist. And as musical theater has evolved, we've moved away from melody a little bit. It's not anything necessarily good or bad. I don't mind the move. It's uh, had extremely effective results and also makes you worry about whether or not we're going to leave that in the dust. Well, I don't think it'll ever be left in the dust. But, you know, y- y- you look at something like, well, Johnny Can't Decide, mm-hmm. that's a melody. That's really, I mean, they repeat it a million different times, but it's expectedly unexpected. Uh, break of day, the dawn is here. You're not... It sounds welcoming, but that is... That's not where you're expecting that to go. Uh, Johnny's up and racing. Compromiser Persa. Bah! It's that note again that they keep hitting. Um, although one thing I hate... Hated about that song here... It, it, the song is in a lower key. We'll just get that out of the way right now. It's in a lower key uh, than it was off-Broadway. And they got rid of my favorite harmony. Um, Johnny has no guide. Johnny has no guide. It's like an ostinata that he... Johnny has no guide. Johnny wants to hide. Near the end. It's like my favorite moment of that song. And then the lead couldn't sing it, so they just cut it. Give it to Joshua right? Henry. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, come to your senses is a melody. Johnny can't decide is a melody. The work is full of melody, and it's fun. The music is fun. I had fun. There was no one near me. I danced at the back of the theater. Oh gosh. Uh, sorry to break fourth wall, listeners, but uh, I mentioned it previously. Uh that I wanted to go see Tick Tick Boom in theaters tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. I'm seeing it, and I am excited to dance my... I'm excited to shake my ass in the aisles today. Well, he's a great melodist. It's fun music, and the lyrics are really... They're good lyrics. Uh... Oh, my God. Dude, cages or wings, which do you prefer? Ask the birds. Holy fuck, bro. He has this real sincere sort of novice tone to him, you know? And it's like an expert of a novice, right? Um, you can see that there's... I can't tell if it's a um, a slight irreverence or at this point in his career an incapability... A, t- a lack of total capability with these sort of classic elements of lyricism and I have to imagine it's not really an irreverence considering his devotion to Sondheim but um, you can tell that sometimes there's like a lyric that gets a little bit uh, purple prosy or a lyric that's a little bit blunt, a little clunky maybe but somehow it never really rubs you the wrong way in fact I think there are probably more lyrics in Rent that I could pick out and go, eh, than I could in Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, and considering that Tick, Tick, Boom's an earlier work, it's actually uh, rather interesting that that happens to be the case. 
Um, well, Rent was unfinished. Well, true, but even still, just the fact that Rent no, I do agree. was being written as he was a more developed artist. I, I do agree that Tick, Tick, Boom is a better set of lyrics than Rent. Mm-hmm. And I think just in tandem with music and lyrics, he has... He, one of my favorite things about him is that he brings in such interesting rhythms, you know? Green, green dress, 20 buttons and a strap. A green, green dress, what a pleasure to unwrap. That's just been, like, bouncing in my head for the past couple days. I love it. Really? Yeah. Where, where do you think Larson's passionate fan base sort of, like, find their grounding? Like, what, what about Larson's work speaks to him? Oh. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, what speaks to them? I guess there's a sense of community in his work. Really, yeah. I mean, it's something that everyone kind of wants to sing along to. And I don't know, some of the very severe rent heads seem like lonely people to me. That, I guess that's somewhat of an insult, but they seem lonely to me. So I guess they're trying to find connection that the music brings them. Interesting. I... I... I was personally thinking that I think Jonathan Larson I think Jonathan Larson's circumstances as exhibited in this movie especially He was Jewish um, That was real fucking lame <laughs> His geographical and financial circumstances uh, made him uniquely on the pulse when it came to his writing right? Because he was among the dregs of New York City. He I was don't living know. in smaller. He was living in no? I would argue he's ahead of the pulse more than on it. And that's part of the tragedy. I mean, you hear about the plot of Superbia, or at least as much as we were told in the movie Tick Tick Boom, and you're realizing what he's writing about is exactly what happened. It just happened twenty years after he died. He's kind of foreseeing the future in a way and Rent was successful after he died but I bet you any amount of money had he not died it would have been a successful show it would not have been the success it was because well we don't know how it would have been rewritten it would have needed to be rewritten it would not have opened in its current form and have gotten the fantastic reviews it got if he were alive because it is an unfinished work and because there are a lot of flaws that people would have to point out. He's gone and there is so much good in there that if you're writing a 500 word review, what use is there talking about the flaws? Yeah. Uh, so even, I, I think Rent would have been ahead of its time, and I think it would have been the second, the third or fourth show that he wrote. I think that's when he would have gotten in at the end of the, really, end of the millennium. I, 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 I agree with you tenfold about the fact that Jonathan Larson would not be Jonathan Larson had it not been for his tragic passing. Like, well, the work still would have been the work. 
the work the would have been the work, is... but I don't I don't think Rent would have won the Tony Award for Best Musical. I'm not sure it would have won. I don't think it would have gone to Broadway. That's exactly it. I I was gonna say I'm not even sure it would have made it off off Broadway necessarily. No, it, it was. It had already secured an off Broadway run. It was going to run off Broadway. No, no, sorry, sorry. I meant sorry. I should have said I. I don't think it would have made it off of off Broadway. My my apologies. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, um, I think it probably would have extended off Broadway. Maybe a cast album that went on to be used for audition songs a lot, but I don't think Mm -hmm. it would have made it to Broadway. But in any case, the work is extremely solid. Um, and that is not something that you can really put into question. What I would find interesting here is what, what is the show after Rent? He had to have had some ideas. There have to be notebooks somewhere. And although this is kind of biography, I think we need an academic biography, someone that has access to all of that material and honestly tells us this is what he was thinking about because what tick tick boom is is it it really tells superbia the story of superbia and then you get an inkling of where he's having the idea for rent what is the next idea what were we deprived of i mean in a greater sense we know what we're deprived of but specifically where did it look like he was going to move to next? That's, I think, what makes it so heartbreaking. You know, that there was still so much to say. No, he, he hadn't even really begun. And Yeah. One thing I do have to say, though, is that as marvelous as this material is, uh... This movie accentuated everything that's perfect about it. Um, And, of course, we've got Lin-Manuel Miranda at the helm of this. As we previously mentioned, making his directorial debut. Um, Frankly, what an impressive first swing. You know? (sighs) Yes, I know. I agree. Credit where credit's due, Dan. Come on. Yes, it is an impressive directorial debut, especially for someone who's never directed a movie before. Mm-hmm. What did you like the most about Lin-Manuel Miranda's work on Tick, Tick, Boom? God, you have to put it that way. What was your favorite thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda did in Tick, Tick, Boom? Him swimming and looking at the bottom of the ocean and the tiles become the music staff with music notes. That was genius. That was great. He does create a visual sense for the movie, so it's not just a show on stage or just a tape concert. He really does visually recontextualize the story, and since film is a visual medium, it's nice to see. I think what gets at the heart of why this movie works as well as it does for me is a quote that I'm going to steal from Jason Robert Brown, 
who in talking about Tick Tick Boom said, uh, he's expert at convincing you to be passionate about whatever he's passionate about. Behind all his considerable technique, he's an enthusiasm monster. And I absolutely have to hand it to Lin-Manuel for that because any work he takes on is imbued with this passion and this importance and this center of the earthness that makes it feel like such an important, such a crucial story. Even just hearing the man speak, he speaks about a subject as if it were the most important thing that has ever existed in life. And that's something that I admire in an artist. I admire someone who's able to bring that thing to their work to really make you want to care about it, make you want to devote yourself to it, you know? And this movie absolutely succeeds at that. It has that unbridled enthusiasm. It has this devotion to Larson that really makes you take on this beautiful beautiful feeling of love for the composer and of the circ and for the circumstances and for the work you know even someone coming into this blind would walk out of it wanting to know more about superbia and did it ever go up you know mm -hmm. of course uh i had heard him mention that he's sort of uh everything he did after um hamilton was sort of just like movie boot camp in that he worked with john chu on in the Heights, and he worked with Steven Levinson on... God damn it. Why uh, does every question um, and statement he makes sound like some kind of press release on a never-ending awards campaign? Like, I'm trying to be positive, but everything I literally just said, said, he, he talked... I, I know, I know. I know it's not you. It's not you. But literally, everything the man no, 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 it's says Lynn. sounds it's, like these are direct quotes from him. And I just can't fucking stand it. And that's why I'm hating talking about this right now. He does a fantastic job. I wish he would be humble about it. But the ego is beyond size that is even imaginable listen, or identifiable listen, by the human brain. I don't know if I... Look, his ego is one thing or another. I honestly think that what I'm talking about harkens exactly back to that thing I was mentioning before, that he just has this fucking unbridled enthusiasm and passion for the shit he does, that he, he kind of just romanticizes but everything. No, and it gets exhausting, not, but he just does that. It is not that he has unbridled passion about everything that he's doing. He has unbridled passion because he is doing that. I get the sense out here he's more obsessed with the fact that it is something that he is doing than he is in the actual project. And that might be unwarranted and I might be being unfair, but I don't know. It's just that he enters the room and he completely deflates any amount of air that is possibly in the room because he sucked it all up himself. He shows up and he's asked to write a book blurb about angels in America for the terrific The World Only Spins Forward book. He was asked to do a quote. And the quote is, oh, reading this is like being in the room where it happens. 
this isn't about you. They asked you. Yes, they want your name. But it's not about fucking Hamilton. Shut up about it. And you know what? Why did they ask you? Why did they interview in the book you in the book? Because honestly, the most important perspective you could have brought is that you have apparently had many political talks with your father, and your father worked in the Mayor Koch office that majorly botched the AIDS epidemic. There was no owning of that. And actually, this movie is in small part about the AIDS epidemic. Has he owned up to that? Like, has that even become a topic of discussion ever? Or do we just not ask hard questions to him and let him speak and empty PR speak? So so do you not want to talk about Lin-Manuel Miranda then? It's hard. I have to talk about him. And the work is good. Loved in the Heights. Um had conflicting feelings about Hamilton, the company I saw really fucked up that show. Uh, but I love the cast album. I'm very conflicted. He does excellent work, and I can't stand him. So why don't we just talk about the work, then? Okay. Cool. Because anytime you quote him, it just, at this point, makes my skin fucking crawl. Right. He doesn't sound like a human being. And that's what I don't get. He doesn't sound like a human being. And then you see his works of art that are honestly all too human. This movie is all too human. And there is a very specific sense of time that comes down to some of the visual decisions, the editing decisions that are made here. Um, It is quick cuts. It is moving very... At a very brisk pace. And I'm trying to remember. I mean, it gets more frantic as the movie goes on, doesn't it? Just in the editing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. And, and um, that's bringing a visual sense to the plot. That's excellent work. You're bringing that frenetic energy, that panicked, you know, ambience, that... that worry you're sort of embedding it into the work itself it's almost subconscious mm-hmm. it does it, it feels like the movie was made with like a craftsman's sort of precision you know um it is really fantastically edited there were moments of cinematography that i really adored i loved the way i keep talking about this scene but i think it's just the one that along with the music, uh, felt most audacious in the movie, uh, No More, um, had some really bonkers cinematography, randomly throwing in Dutch angles and uh, sweeping shots, and you can tell the the thing where they're going into uh, Michael's apartment for the first time, you can tell that that's being shot at like 1.25 times the speed, and they slowed it down in post, and they're sort of, it gives them this floating sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's craftsmanship. That's what there's, he does. There's floating throughout. I mean, besides that, which no more does feel like they are floating, it, it also... He's swimming constantly, so that's literal floating. And right. And then come to your senses... Uh, how does that... You're oh, yeah. on the air. I'm underground. I mean, is it 
realizing that you're looking at the script and there are visual pointers here that you can somehow try and follow with the cinematography and editing decisions you make? If so, it's a genius. Mm-hmm. I was... I'm, I'm, I'm awed by it, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't... Um, I don't really know that there's anything that spoils the pot, you know? Casting decisions spoil... There were a couple things that just looked cheap, but... I think that comes down to the budget you well, have. I mean, there's some green screening. I guess the, the, the diner stuff felt a little um, unreal, which I guess... Although, I mean, that. at the beginning of the song, it kind of knowingly enters that surreality because aren't there more people at the diner, the song starts, and then all of a sudden you just have the Broadway people? Yeah, but I mean, like, like through, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the scene where um, John's talking to uh, Ira. And they're shooting it from, like, such an angle that you can very obviously tell that the windows outside are, like, very artificial and fake. And it sort of feels like they're on a sort of CW set. Um, Talking about Sunday, though, I didn't realize it until, like, re-watching the moment. Um, I hadn't noticed that at the end of Sunday, the moon dance diner sign goes away and down floats that Sunday sign... And it sort of fades into this Syrah like pointillism filter. Yeah. Um, No, they do. That I adored. Some kind of filter that tries to make it look like pointillism. I think that was one of the things that kind of came off as a little cheap. But it was a nice. I appreciated the tip of the hat, whether or not it was Mm -hmm. done to the level I wanted it to be done with. I mean, really, the entire movie, outside of a specific performance. Uh, where they miss, it's well-intentioned, and you can tell that it's well-intentioned yeah. enough that you don't mind. That's exactly what I what I mean when I say when this movie is corny, it's endearingly so. You know? Like, there's nothing you really groan at. There's, there's almost nothing you really groan at. <laughs> I should say there's almost no one. Um... If it stumbles, you it's it's extremely forgivable because you see exactly what he was trying to do and you get and you go, Okay, that didn't work, but it wasn't a poor decision, you know? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. I mean um, really more than anything, it shows he has good instincts for directing movie music. Yeah. Yeah. Um instincts I'm not gonna... can't be taught. Yeah, I'm not going to now jump on the let uh, uh, direct every musical theater movie from then on. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that this is probably something that he's been wanting to do for ages and has had like fucking all the time in the world to think about how he would want to do it. Well, and I hope he would direct that being another said, movie musical. I was going to say, that being said, I would like to see more films entrusted in his hands. I'm not going to go, oh, let him direct Wicked and this upcoming Matilda movie and uh, remake fucking Godspell. But (laughs) isn't that something we need right now? A Godspell remake. The fans are clamoring. (laughs) Um, Godspell. (laughs) I don't... I don't know if 
he would work on more traditional material. So yeah, yeah, it, you're right. We've talked about this is kind of a nebulous project that has had several different forms and formats. I would be optimistic to seeing him do other movie musicals, but I don't know if it's something that is more a standard musical told directly without frills or something that is established in form. I don't know if he would handle that as well. The Mm -hmm. editing here was very frenetic, but never confusingly so, which is always um, where things have gone wrong. They will be frenetic, but it can get to be too much. He never crosses that line, but you put that exact editing on something that's trying to be a 1950s Hollywood musical, it would crumble. It would look terrible. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like... Um, he's shown that he has the exact skill set for this movie. He's shown that he has good instincts for directing movie musicals. I don't know if it's versatile yet. I hope it is. What's a controlled environment that we can put this guy in to see if he's, he has some flexibility? What's like a low risk property we could pin on him? Well, I don't know, because I don't know. I honestly don't know how many other people's musicals he's going to want to sit around and direct. This was no, I mean, a passion project, he could, you know? I could see him going, I guess, yeah. I don't think he's going to sit down and say, Oh, Jake Gyllenhaal's doing Fun Home, let me direct. Well, I don't know. I mean, But I, in he, any case... I, we talked about the quote and he does things that he is passionate about um yeah i don't know what other musicals he is that passionate about to make a movie out of i guess we'll see we will see the production of music on this film was truly fucking fantastic Uh, i um I was surprised at how much I loved the orchestrations and arrangements they come up with. I did Mm -hmm. mention the one moment that was missing that disappointed me. Otherwise, it sounded hip, but period appropriate, which is very hard. Very true. Yeah, it sounded like it, like, it towed the line between dated and authentic. Mm Mm-hmm. And you want to know something I learned? What did you learn, um, Dorothy? Um, I shared this fact with you, but I learned uh, from an interview with uh, Lynn and Bernadette. Um, the orchestrations uh, for Sunday in this film uh, were put together by Michael Starobin, uh, as in the original orchestrator for Sunday in the Park with George, um, which just makes me grin. You know, that's that's the attention to detail you get when you actually get people who know the shit they're creating. You know? You know who to get. You know what to accentuate. You know what you want to cattle in. I don't... You're not just some director going, oh, let's find uh, who's the most popular. Yeah, let's get Hans Zimmer on the score. You know? 
the attention to detail present in the music here is astounding. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but at the very beginning of again, no more. There's this little drum riff, this little that sounds exactly like the intro drum riff to Rent in Rent. And I feel like that was intentional. Well, you know, like, like, intentional. hear this out. You know, it's it, that immediately I heard that. I went, oh, Rent. Mm hmm. It's, it's, it's. As much as there is musical theater nerddom, it absolutely is dwarfed by the intense amount of Jonathan Larson nerddom present in the music. And that extends way beyond um, just the accents in Tick, Tick, Boom's music. They brought in some fucking Jonathan Larson deep cuts. There were songs uh, from Superbia like Sextet and LCD Readout, which have been just sort of fucking buried in the Larson archives that are getting, like, you know, full-ass integrations here. Um, know, and that's that's yeah. a question I have. Like, obviously, morally, it is wrong to try and do a full production of Superbia, but why don't they do a one-night concert, just presentation yeah. of the workshop? The yeah, presentation of how that workshop ended it just for the morbidly curious and record it because that I, would be brilliant i'm not expecting it to be very good but i am fascinated by what it is and i don't think it's available anywhere i would i not that I, not to my knowledge it might be out there somewhere but no I, I guess it's, this is the second point I'm making. The family has been very protective over his quote-unquote legacy, but they're not being... Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if they're being kind to academia or discussions of the work in totality. Yeah. They've kind of decided that Tick, Tick, Boom, and Rent are the shows, and that's it kid and there have been concerts of some of his other undiscovered songs but especially right. having some kind of quote-unquote full version of superbia even though it's unfinished let's hear what it was from what i've been able to gather it seems like the larson family sort of are comfortable with their familiar players Mm -hmm. Right? And sort of have this sort of inside ball game thing going on where they're comfortable with who they're comfortable with, you know? Then, to be completely frankly honest, um, one of those people a million percent is going to be Jennifer Ashley Tepper, who is the founder of the Jonathan Larson Project and, like, maybe the biggest Larson fanatic in the higher-ranking scheme of uh new york producing bodies i appreciate um, what she does she's the same stable of performers she uses for every goddamn thing and i can't stand half of them yeah half and of that's them present are here as well half of them it's i like can't a, fucking stand i get it i no, i get it and like those players were all the same in here as well like they got nick blameyer they got lauren marcus they got joe iconis in this you think what's their what are they doing in this thing oh yeah it's jen tepper of course but absolutely to her credit she 
and Lin sort of partnered together for this uh, with the intent of making sure that Tick, Tick, Boom did not come out saying songs by Jonathan Larson. It came out saying score by Jonathan Larson. And so they like went in and they tried to extract as much Larson material as they could and create this sort of full-fledged score. And they like secretly wove in songs like Ever After during the focus group scene. I heard um, Debtor Club is somewhere in the movie amongst the rubble. Um, and they did intend to fully create like an entire musical score of Larson's work, which I truly appreciate the nuance for. You know, it, it lets you trust the movie a hell of a lot more, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. No, it's clear they um, are being very deferential to the work. Mm-hmm. Which I... is right, I think. Yeah, it's right. I just wish some of that deference would have been shown in selecting a particular vocalist. Really shits the Do bed. you want to transition into the performers? Sure. Let's cut the shit. Vanessa Hudgens can't sing. Wow. All right. Okay. Here's my thoughts. Cannot Let's... fucking sing. I don't want to hear it. It's just a nasal, girly tone. There's no sense of line. There's a reliance on nasality because she does not actually know how to create a vocal tone or vocal quality. It... It sounds... She vocally has not aged a day since she did that fucking high school musical, and that is not a compliment because she was a teenage (laughs) girl and she was supposed to sound like a teenage girl here. I'm sure she's in her 30s at this point. Why doesn't she sound like an adult? It sounds... You are listening to a below average girl from not even the performing arts high school just the general high school in your town and for some reason she is on screen and she is cast as specifically a vocalist and she sings so bad enough that she started singing come to your senses doing the superbia workshop and i went oh I completely get it. I completely get how Superbia went nowhere because the gal in the workshop fucked Jonathan Larson over. Wow. God damn. She can't sing. I am sorry. She might be a lovely actress who can create a career somewhere, other places where she doesn't have to sing, but she did nothing for me. I hated her. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought she was the strongest point of the movie for me. Um, I... I'm excited to see the awards buzz that's going to uh, surely swirl around her name. There it really was, like, an insane amount of vocal processing on her. Like, truly, like... You need to make it clear that first amount. line was a joke, because you didn't drop... I'm sorry, was, it, it was, was there an assumption that it could have been said in earnest? Yes, because some people are insane and think she can sound decent. Listen, I, I, it is the one performer in the movie that I thought sort of just gave nothing. Like, it's really the one performance I thought She stood there and smiled. She didn't even really act. Yeah, she had two moments of acting in the movie altogether, and neither of them were acting. Yeah. Um, which did suck. Yeah, there's, I don't know, there's just nothing to say. There's... not even nothing that's not been said. There's nothing to say in the first place. Well, um, no, I mean, you said an insane amount of vocal processing, which, I mean, there wasn't much of a voice to process to begin with. 
Yeah, so, I'm just saying like she didn't she didn't really bring anything to the table. Like there's nothing that I can even comment on. She just sort of she's there. She was she was worse than placebo. Yeah. Anyway, everyone else was fucking great. She was um, she was the misstep, and then it's such a serious misstep when you have come to your senses. And that is the song that everyone's going to hear. And that is the song the entire plot is wrapped around. So then to have her be there to sing that song kind of jeopardizes the entire movie. I mean, the rest of it is good enough that it isn't severely jeopardized, but if it had been more poorly directed, that really would have sunk the entire movie. Let the girl, let Susan actually sing the entire thing. She sounded good. Oh, God, yeah. Um, can we pivot over to her performance? Because I actually really want to talk about how criminal it is that she did not get to sing more. Okay. So we had Alexandra Ship playing Susan, who simply just did a, such a bang-up job. It was a marvelously thorough performance that gave as much conviction as it did fun, you know? It had this fantastic bubbling quality to it that made you empathetic for her very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alexandra just has such a lovely presence on a screen. Wow. Like, this is the this is an actress whose Emanating movies I'll be following. The screen. Sorry. Um, she, um, she previously played Aaliyah in uh, that infamous Lifetime movie that oh, was made she? about her. Did she? Yeah, that was her. Um, and you know what? The talent's there. Like, it is inarguably there. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had um, about two seconds to sing. She sang very well. Uh, it was very yeah. decent acting. Very decent acting. I, I believed it. And I believed this is someone who cared about Jonathan enough that she was that hurt to seemingly hold a grudge. Not completely, but she can't walk in at the birthday party. She goes to the 3090 presentation, but she's not sitting in the seat. She's at the back. Uh, mm -hmm. That would seem dramatic with a lesser actress. And it's kind of, nope, I get it. You know? Yeah. Her performance made those decisions believable. Very true. Very true. It was it, it, it it's just a lovely performance. I, I I just enjoyed watching it. Like damn, it was just a lovely lovely time and a lovely presence to have. Mhm. Yeah. Can we um can I Can we talk about Judith Light? No. We can talk about Dame Please? Judith Light. Okay. I don't care that she's that, not I, British. I would feel she is Dame Judith Light. Yeah, I give I I completely see where you're coming from with this. I call um, you Joshi because of her line reading and transparent calling her son Joshi. True story. <laughs> you have Dame Judith Light to thank for that. And I was on her side too. Shame. <laughs> um Dan, I'm going to send you something right now. And audience I'd like you to look this up of your own accord. 
Uh, go on to Lynn Manuel Miranda's Twitter and find a post from November 2nd, 2021. You are going to see... Um, oh, and open the tweet, Dan. Uh, you're going to see photos of Judith Light photoshopped to be with all of the Broadway names. So there's Stephen Sondheim. That actually looks believable. Um, no, is that Jerry the- Robbins? Yes, it is. It's Jerry Robbins. That's it's Jerry Robbins. Edward Albee. It's, it's, it's Bennett. Jerry Robbins and Judith Light. I know that one killed me. A color photograph of Jerry of Robbins. Jerry Robbins with Judith Light. It was put together by a production designer, Alex D. Gerlando. Oh, wow. Isn't that brilliant? Mm-hmm. Um, I just love that so much. So Judith Light, uh, Dame. clearly connected to all the stars. Dame Judith Light, clearly connected to all the stars in the world. Are you just doing that because it's a second Dame Judy? You know, that's probably part of it that I wasn't cognizant of. Yeah. And now that you've said it, you've really disappointed me. But I... I Whatever. It, to me, it's Dame Judith Light. She has earned the honorific, and it just sounds correct. Dame Judith Light. Um, and she's quite a scene stealer here, isn't she? Well, she has about two scenes, but she does steal them. And... Yeah, of those two scenes, that still... Very layered work in that last scene of now what do i do my god you start working on the next one and you can tell that she hurts for this kid but he's also not being realistic and also she has to go other places but also she's an agent and this is what agents have to do and also she does think that he is talented and he might actually do something in his life like there are a million things going on in her head at that time all of them interesting it is the pinnacle of new york slimeball royalty you know so magnificently embodied Like, I, mean, I, I can no, no, smell it's... the cigarette smoke in her jacket. You know? She's doing Flory Lasky. And... Sure, yeah. It's a very good Flory Lasky. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's lived in. It's very specific. She comes on screen, and within two seconds, you know who that character is. And then at the end, it's shockingly grounded work. Like, Judith Light should be in everything. Dame Judith Light should be in everything. And she yeah, was, I see where you're coming she from. She was a decent Joanne. She has played Joanne and Company before. Yes, she has. Um, where was that? That was at L.A. Reprise, and I believe Christopher Siba was yes. Bobby. Yes. Yeah, uh, and Josh Radner was in it. That's how I know that production. Fucking uh, a glorious portrayal. Just glorious. Really peps the movie up. Yeah. Um, who's next? Uh, Joshua Henry? I'm sure he really just has to sing. I don't think he has any dialogue. Like, there might be two or three He has this. He has this one moment in Boho Days where he's just jamming out with Andrew Garfield. Um, and it's this unbridled enthusiasm and showmanship. It's literally like a 10, 15 second snippet, and it might be like my favorite performance moment in the movie. 
Really? It's this, like, utter glee and exuberance and thrill and aliveness. It feels so fucking alive. It feels like borderline documentarian. Mm-hmm. That I just love. I love, love, love. But, yeah, it's it's so fucking well sung and well embodied. And I am glad that they had someone uh, as strong as him playing Roger Barton in this movie. He sings, and when Joshua Henry sings, he's in good hands. There's nothing to say. Yeah. Ugh. I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. Um, who's next? Who do you want to talk about next? I've I've pushed too know. many in your face. Who do I you want to talk about? Oh, who played Ira Weitzman? That was played by uh, Jonathan Mark Sherman. As in, like, playwright Jonathan Mark Sherman. Really? Yeah. That's him as Ira fucking Weissman. Ha! Ha! Yeah. Ha. I know him from uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Where would you know him from? Well, didn't Callista Flachart do one of his plays? Yeah, that was um, Sons and Fathers. There we go. There we go, yeah. Sons and Fathers. And uh, Ethan Hawke as well. Um, Really a fantastic performance, huh? It makes quite an impression. Yeah, I mean, you could tell that he's someone that cares about these writers, cares about the art, but also he has a very limited budget, and he doesn't have the most time to spend on your feelings when it comes to budgetary concerns. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. yeah, our running budget is that much, but if your workshop has four musicians, then the ten other writers I have in workshops this year, they're all going to need four musicians, and I've set a new standard, and then the musicians are going to come to me and demand more. It's... He cares. He cares, but he's very um, boxed in with what he can do. Wonderfully strung out, you know? Well, strung um, out in what way? Because strung out means a couple different things. Strung like like worn out, like you know he's worn out. he's okay. trying. He's yeah, he's trying very hard, and you can see that love and you can see that passion, but it's it extends so far. Strung out as in worn out, not strung out as in Roger and April. Well, yes, <laughs> that's dark. Yes, Dan, that's dark. <laughs> <laughs> that's poetic. That's pathetic. <laughs> All right. Big leagues. Robin de Jesus. He was great. He was great. Yeah, he, fuck he was. He, he didn't have much to sing, but he sang well. And... Yeah, he sang well. He had fantastic physicality. His emotion was superb. Not going to lie. I, 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 I think with maybe a little bit more material could have been a clinch for... Best Supporting Actor nomination? I don't know, because uh, he certainly had more material in Boys in the Band, and none of them got nominated. Well, yeah, but that's just because the Academy are homophobes. Well, I was about to say, yeah, he's a gay man playing a gay man, and apparently that's not acting. I I, I enjoyed that he was in this. I enjoyed him in it. He was very good. Yeah, he was one of the... uh, 
you, you, strongest links of the company for certain. You could tell that he and Andrew Garfield had like a lived history with each other, which of course they don't really. Yeah. But somehow they played that and communicated yeah. that to you. To marvelous effect. Um, and of course that is absolutely due no less to the mag-fucking-nificent portrayal of Jonathan Larson by Andrew Garfield. Like, truly a holy shit wow performance. I I don't know. Where do you start with this? Well, no, no, you know what I messaged you. I think they might be giving Garfield an Oscar. I... I responded to you with some pushback. I responded with, I thought it was an excellent performance and as good of a performance as I could have possibly imagined from this movie, and I didn't necessarily... I, I responded saying, I don't necessarily think that that's Oscar material. I don't, I don't... I'd be pretty surprised to see him nominated. Not shocked, but surprised. Um, and then I got my hands on... Who the fuck would have thought another advanced copy? I'm not kidding. I didn't know I signed up for one. I got another advanced copy. So I watched it again virtually. Just like skimming through it this time. Mm-hmm. And... No, you're absolutely fucking right. You are completely right. I know I am. That I'm always right. This could... Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I... I <laughs> would be surprised to not see this get a nomination for Best no, Actor. No, he's gonna be nominated. Um... um it depends on what kind of campaigning they do behind him if he wins. Uh huh. He's it's... not the best vocalist in the world. Let's be honest, but he's. But he is not a damn bad one. He's not bad. He's not a bad one. He's not a bad vocalist. He sings well enough that you can believe this is a musical theater writer. Uh, yeah, performing and you know his what? Own I'm gonna fucking say it. I'm gonna say it. Andrew Garfield in this movie sings a hell of a lot better than Jonathan Larson does. Well, yeah, that is true. Stop the clock. Take time out. God, time to regroup. That's my Larson impression. God will get you for that. <laughs> I didn't mock him. I'm just giving you what you, it sounds you like. You mocked him. You mocked him. You know you mocked him. Dan, the fact that I was not doing that to mock at all tells you about what Jonathan Larson's voice comes off like. Uh, anyway, back to Garfield. He, he sings well. He definitely acts well. I think what he has going for him more than anyone else is the entire movie is his performance, and it's a good movie. Like, you think back to Bette Midler and the Rose. Mm. The entire movie is her performance, but also a movie can't just be one perfor- one person's performance. And the movie kind of let Bette Midler down, and it was a very competitive category that year. His performance is mm-hmm. the entire movie, and it's a good movie. And he's pulling double duty with this and the Tammy Faye thing that I didn't see. Um, and it looks like they're really going to campaign behind him. I think he has a decent chance of winning the Oscar. I'd be... I'd be glad to see it. I'd truly be glad to see it. It's deserving um, enough of an Oscar. Is it the best uh, performance I've seen in my life? No. Is it a great performance? Absolutely. Is it about the best performance Andrew Garfield can give? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Lynn, in another interview, uh, was mentioning that he knew that he needed to get a theater beast for the role of Larson. And he knew that Andrew Garfield was a theater beast. And that absolutely comes through in this. This is a company completely stacked with theater beasts. And you can tell. You can tell that they know how to embody this material. They know how to navigate it. And they know how to translate it. People who are strictly of that one singular medium, like, you know, a movie star playing a role in a, like, I don't know, fucking Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore knows how to do film, and she does not know how to transition musical material into film. Andrew Garfield knows both. Robin DeJesus knows both. They are both... Like, you watch No More, and they have this little choreography they're doing in the empty apartment. And you just watch that, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is a million percent a movie that knows exactly what it's fucking doing. That was the exact point of the movie where I went, I am going to be safe from here on out, for certain. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I am grateful for Andrew Garfield's complete embodiment of a theater animal not just in the way he performed this but in understanding jonathan larson who was well i think really the whole theater animal comment is getting at you need someone who knows that they can be big yeah because certain film actors they can get big for screen you need someone who knows how to actually get big. Because, I mean, listen to that music. That music demands some big performance moves, which they give it. And he's not, um, well, he's not Ethel Merman. <laughs> you watch a movie with Ethel Merman, and, you know, she's playing to the back of the house. I was trying to think about that Johnny can't decide now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing with Ethel Merman is she's on stage at the Schubert Theater. She's playing to the back of the house, and the back of her house is in New Jersey. So then you take her out to California, (laughs) and you put her in a Hollywood movie. She's still playing to the back of the house in New Jersey. And yes, it's a farther distance, and that means she has to perform even that much farther, and she's going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) like he's a screen actor that knows how to be a screen actor but can also bring the bravado can bring the bigness and um doesn't ever feel awkward because if this had felt that's really the best compliment you can give for this performance not a single second does this feel awkward for him and you put these hollywood actors in musicals and they feel awkward and that would have been had he not been comfortable every second he was on that screen the entire movie would have been immediately sunk to the absolute lowest level yeah i think it's as perfect a performance as we possibly could have had in this movie you could have sung it better but that's a nitpick i i i suppose I don't think it even really hampered my enjoyment of the movie. It didn't there hamper was, my enjoyment look, of the movie. I agree with the you The only people who you could ever tell had any vocal processing on it was Vanessa, 100% of the time, and Andrew, but you could only tell when he was not being accompanied. 
Like, you could tell in Boho Days, you could tell in the acapella parts of Therapy, mm-hmm. and maybe some of the quieter moments of Why. Otherwise, you could not tell. Maybe that's brilliant vocal mixing. Maybe that's Andrew Garfield really getting... Here's a quick... One last quick little fun story before we wrap this section up. There was a story about Lin-Manuel Miranda throwing a shoe at Andrew Garfield while Andrew was rehearsing 3090. Lin-Manuel Miranda threw a shoe at Andrew and said, You fucker, you told me you couldn't sing. Hmm. Uh, Apparently went on to, like, grab him by the shoulders and go, like, Don't let anyone ever tell you that you cannot do something for the rest of your life again. You know, when I hear about throwing a shoe, I immediately think of George Bush in that press conference. (laughs) That was Lynn. That was Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes Garfield George Bush. (laughs) Yes, what a perfect analogy, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, that wraps up our section on the performances. And overall... I think that about wraps up all of the discussion of the material of Tick, Tick, Boom. So all that's left to do is put our write a song. UCC stamp. Our what? I don't have any ideas. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I... A lot of ideas. Not again, please. Oh, you were doing so well, too. Don't slip back into old habits. No. Look, we, gotta, we just got to put life. our... Oh, by the way, this free poster they gave me, the tagline here is, how much time do we have to do something great? Thanks a lot, guys. You're tormenting me every single day. Should I choose to hang up this poster? Because you know what the response is? Wow. Not a lot of time. Not a fucking <laughs> lot. This guy's dead five years after the movie events. <laughs> That's the biggest fucking spit in the face to Michael's whole line of attack. You are completely... You are destroying Robin DeJesus' fucking argument in a snap. Jesus Christ. What was the argument again? The whole thing is like, you have time, we don't. Well, it turned out he didn't, so... Yeah, so fucking, are you telling him that he was wrong? Well, no, he had slightly Came down in a bubble, dude. Sorry, that was a reference. He had slightly... Yeah, I got it. He had slightly more (laughs) amount of time than someone who was HIV positive, but he didn't have much time left himself. Yeah, so fuck Michael. (laughs) He was dead-ass wrong. Not fuck Michael, just fuck everybody. You don't have time to do anything in this world. There are not enough hours in the day, Okay. There are not enough I hours in the day. I think let's grade this Dreams movie. I think let's grade this movie. Big. You can only live with disappointment. Do you think we grade this movie? I think life. we grade this movie. <sighs> Dreams don't die, so keep an eye on. Don't your... do this to me right now. It's an A plus. I don't think it's one hundred percent perfect, but. It's the best movie musical that's come along for quite some fucking time. Um, there are mostly terrific performances. <laughs> it's well-directed. There are ingenious visual moments. It looks great. It sounds terrific, although vocal processing is what it is. 
Um, and there is a performance at the center that could not be more shorthanded. It's an A+. Plus. Yeah. Um, I... I, I'm giving I'm giving this movie an extremely solid A. It's not a it's not a flawless movie. It's not a perfect movie. Is this one of the best movie musicals I've seen in years? Yes. Have I seen it? Update listeners. Have I seen it three times now? Yes. Wow. Will I be watching it more? Yes. I, I probably will be watching it when my friends get in town. Yeah, I, I've seen it thrice in the past week, uh, and I feel no remorse about it. And I've no been listening day, to thirty ninety five times day. per day. I think, uh, like objectively, I think the these couple blips and stumbles and whatever chalk the total product of the movie to an A. And I honestly think, up against the greater standard of contemporary mu- movie musicals. That puts it in, like, the top three, you know? <laughs> like, it's the best movie musical since. That's an interesting question. Um, is it since Chicago? Mm, maybe. What else has come along? Well, no. No, because once. But that wasn't really... That, wasn't really that was a musical movie rather than a movie musical. Oh, Dreamgirls. Dreamgirls. How could I forget Dreamgirls? Sin, do you want to Dream say Girls since Dreamgirls? Dreamgirls was a terrific movie. Yeah, it's the best movie musical since Dreamgirls, which was in 2006. Cool. Cool. I'm happy with that. You know, watching this movie, uh, having finally seen it on a big screen, God, this is like a whole journey that our audience is going with. They're like <laughs> tracking the progress of me before, during, and after watching this damn movie on a big screen. Um... I want to end the episode on just saying this one last thing that really, really moved me. Having the final scene louder than words. And this entire scene is dedicated to showing you Jonathan Larson performing and then showing you the audience of Jonathan's peers and families and friends and mentors. The camera shows all of these crucial crucial figures in Jonathan's life and they're seeing him and his work is being seen and his work is being heard and it's reaching the ears of those people that are so important to him in life and watching that scene I was looking at that screen going like holy shit this movie revived Jonathan Larson like this movie brought him back to life and told him that his work mattered and his work was heard and his work achieved and that it was not for nothing and he did not throw those eight years away making this thing because because we have this all the audience shots at the end I thought were a subversion of the ending of all that jazz oh I suppose so that's how I took that like, if all the jazz ended happily. <laughs> <laughs> Is Tick Tick Boom the anti Fosse? Mm. Oh, no, it's not, it? because he's. No, it's not, because Larson still dies from his heart. Well, I mean, he's still. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> oh, God, is it? 
I mean, it's not a dance <laughs> musical, but it is still a musical. Um, hey, that that plays into Auntie. Huh. Yeah, this movie might be the Auntie Fosse. Wow. Ruminate on that. We'll 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 talk wow. about this. You and I personally. Yeah. My mind is just a flutter. There you go. I like to end these on a dramatic high note. That's us talking about tick, tick, boom. boom. (laughs) Right, but that's that's our episode for this week. Uh, And now for something completely different. A man with three buttocks. Oh, sorry, wrong sheet of paper, sorry. And now for something completely different. Monty Python's Spamalot. You didn't get that reference because you're on culture, but that's completely fine. Next week, we are talking about the 2005 Broadway musical, Monty Python's Spamalot, the Broadway musical adaptation of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I have the special edition Monty Python and the Holy Grail at home that came with the screenplay printed out and an actual framed film set. Wow. Good so. for you. You want to do the whole nudge nudge sketch right now? I can do it. Can you do it? Mm-hmm. Good evening, squad. Good evening. Your wife will go, eh? Hey, know what I mean? Know what I mean? Nudge nudge say no more. Know what I mean? What? Your wife? Does she go? Hey, Does she Bye. go? Know what I mean? Know what I mean? Nudge nudge. I'm going to be fucking insufferable next week, guys. Tune into the next episode. It's going to be a hoot and a half. See y'all. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Tune in next week when we talk about Monty Python's Spamalot, specifically the Broadway production's performance from March 12, 2005. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot publish, or distribute the recordings discussed here.